Is that good? There we go. All right. Sorry. My dad has the real strong voice of the family. Mine is extremely weak. So, uh, as was mentioned a moment ago, we have been privileged to live here for a little while now and uh, have noticed, of course, Midway many times. I know uh, some of your relatives uh, that are members at Moulton and uh, been able to, as we say, see the building passing, going to Decatur a lot, uh, but it's good to finally be inside and to be able to interact and to uh, get to know one another a little bit better. Uh, I'm uh, married to Brooke. We've been married for about 13 years now, and uh, we have three little boys, which means we always have something going. And uh, we refer to ourselves as the circus because you can always find something going on at all times. And so, uh, but we're grateful to be with you tonight, grateful they could be here. That's not always the case uh, when I have to travel. But tonight I want us to think about uh, a concept that um, is not, uh, not foreign to us. And that is that life is filled with struggles and anxieties. Now I don't want to, I know that's necessarily not the best way to start. Let's talk about how bad things can get. But you have to acknowledge it. That life has struggles. And there are anxieties. As a matter of fact, the word translated anxiety in the New Testament, for an example, in Philippians 4 and verse 6, be anxious for nothing, the word literally means to pull in different directions. Boy, you can feel that, can't you? We all are pulled in different directions, right? We're pulled toward our marriages. We're pulled to our children. We're pulled to our, toward our work. We're pulled toward the things of the church. We're pulled to different activities. And we're, we're just almost pulled apart. And we can't seem to keep it together. The Bible discusses that because in the midst of difficulty, it's as if those pressures are magnified. And so we're being pulled and stretched and pulled and stretched. The question is, how are we supposed to handle those moments when they come along? And the reason why I want us to look at Psalm 23 tonight is because David wrote, out of his vast experience of walking with God, how to handle, and I believe that this psalm has rightly been entitled by some individual, I'm not sure who, as the psalm of calm. And that's what I want us to talk about tonight. The psalm of calm that is very often understood. Now it's interesting that when David chose to illustrate the closeness between God and His children, he chose one of the closest relationships known in the ancient Near East, and that was the sheep and the shepherd relationship. For an example, that may not necessarily be all that much, all that important to us, but uh, to, to modernize it or make it more American, if he had written this in the 21st century in America, he would have probably written about it between a dog and his owner. That's the, the relationship was extremely close. For an example, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, when Nathan confronts David and, and he says, and he gives him the parable of the rich man and the poor man, and the rich man had exceeding great flocks and herds, and the poor man had one little ewe lamb, which he had nourished and brought up with his children, who used to eat from his plate and to drink from his cup and to lie in his arms. And after hearing that that lamb had been slaughtered, what did David say should happen to the man who did it? He's got to die. That relationship was so close that it's even proven to this day, if you go to Middle Eastern shepherds, if you blindfold a Middle Eastern shepherd and all he's allowed to do is to touch the face of the sheep, he will call every one of them by name and never miss. Never. He has a name for them, he has an intimate knowledge of them, and his voice is known to them. 
If I were to dress up in the shepherd's clothing and call the sheep toward me, they would not come because they literally would not recognize my voice. Even though I may look like him, they don't recognize his voice and so they won't come. And so there's a close-knit relationship that exists. Now here's the thing about Psalm 23 because this is the passage that a lot of people are familiar with. But I have a theory that well-known passages are extremely dangerous to us. Well-known passages are extremely dangerous to us, and here is why. Because we feel like we understand them, and we stop probing their depths. Well, I know what that means. I mean, we've all heard that our whole life. So, you know, we look at it and read and go, yeah, I see the same things I've always seen. But we never force ourselves below the surface of what we see in that particular text. For an example, John 3.16 is a classic text. People think, I know exactly what that's talking about. God loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Here's my question. To whom did Jesus make that statement? To whom did Jesus make that statement? Nicodemus. He didn't just make it as some random off statement somewhere. It was in a conversation with Nicodemus of the Sanhedrin Council. Which furthermore, when you get to the idea of whoever believes in me, what, you know what that means? You can't divorce believing in Jesus from the new birth of verses 3 through 5. And so, we get into those familiar texts and sometimes we may not know as much about them as we think we do. And so as we think about Psalm 23 tonight, there are a lot of things that could be said. We're going to skim the surface because... There's so much here. Volumes and volumes of books could be written simply on the message of this particular psalm. So what I want us to do is look at some preliminary things to get a broad view of where we are in the psalms and what's going on. And then I want us to look at the psalm itself and close with some practical points of application. So number one, let's begin with some preliminary observations. First, of course, the author is David himself. All right, it's David. He wrote one, this is one of his 73 psalms. David wrote about half of the psalms. He did not write them all, even though that's, common, that's commonly taught. Now, he had been a shepherd in his younger years. Shepherding was the chief profession of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. But by the time of David, it had fallen in importance. And that's why the youngest son, David, was out in the field. Okay? And so it wasn't necessarily the highest position that you could have. Now, this particular psalm, when you read it, you get the feeling that the person who is writing has walked with God for quite some time. There's there's something to be gained by experience of walking with God and what you learn. And you can tell when you're around a person who has walked with God, has been intimate with God for a long time, that rubs off. It just exudes from their presence. And so this psalm, some people believe it was written after Absalom's rebellion. You remember his son who turned against him and tried to overthrow him, 2 Samuel 13, all the way through 19. Now, number two, I want us to pay attention to the placement of the psalm because this helps to put it into proper perspective. So, what, become, what comes before Psalm 23? Well, the Captain Obvious answer is Psalm 22, but what is Psalm 22 about? Psalm 22 begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It begins with the crucifixion of Jesus. The only way that we can have the Lord as a shepherd in Psalm 23 is because we had Him as a crucified Savior in Psalm 22. That's the only way you get it. But furthermore, what comes after Psalm 23? Again, the obvious answer is Psalm 24. 
But at the end of Psalm 24, this is a psalm that is written, it parallels to 2 Samuel chapter 6 when David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into the city of Jerusalem. And when it says these words, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, and that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? This, the Lord of hosts, He is the King of glory. Now that is a song sung in antiphonal singing. The people who were bearing the ark into the city were singing one part, and the people inside of the city were asking the question, who is this king of glory? And so it's something that's being sung. Now, this, and we don't have the time, it's a whole different study on its own, this is a reference to the ascension of Jesus back into heaven. Okay? His resurrection and His glorious ascension that you can even see remnants of in Daniel 7, 13 and 14 and Acts 1, 9 through 11. So, the reason why, what's interesting is that, is that Psalm 23 is at the very heart of the gospel. The crucifixion on one side, the resurrection and the ascension on the other side. That placement helps us to see the weight of what is being said. Next, <clears throat> look at the relationship that exists within the psalm. When you read the psalm, no less than ten times is there reference made to God. For an example, He leads me, or you are with me. Furthermore, 17 other times, there is a reference to the psalmist, me, my, I. There's relationship going back and forth, and we'll flesh that out a little bit more as we walk through. Now, let's pay attention to the viewpoint of the psalm as well. Because the viewpoint is changing. This psalm is written from the eyes of a sheep looking at its shepherd. Okay? And if we don't understand that, we're going to miss so many different things that are going on in the psalm. And so, in verses 1 through 3, it's as if a sheep, David as a sheep, is talking to other sheep about his shepherd. And that's why he speaks of him in the third person. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Speaking of God in the third person about someone else. But as you move to verses 4 and 5, he's speaking to the shepherd. It takes on the second person. You are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You see, the focus, the viewpoint has changed from speaking to people about the shepherd to speaking directly to the shepherd. And then when we come to the end of the psalm, he is turned again to speaking to other sheep about the glorious life that he lives. But one other thing is important as we try and discern what's happening, and that is the locations under discussion. There are three major location moves in Psalm 23. The first is what we call the ranch, verses 1 through 3. He is at home at the home ranch and he is feeding and he is talking to the other sheep about his shepherd. And then in verses 4 and 5, he goes to what is called the tabletop. The tabletop would be during certain months of the year, he would take them to the top of the mountain and there would feed them where there would be an abundance of grass. And so he makes his journey up to the tabletop. And that's the valley of the shadow of death. That's preparing the table before him in the presence of his enemies. And then toward the end of the psalm in verse 6, they're on their journey back to the ranch. And so, just preliminary discussions, we have a lot of movements that are taking place in this psalm, and we have to track those movements, we have to track those viewpoints, if we want to understand what is going on in the psalm and feel the weight of it. Now, here's how the psalm breaks in my judgment, my estimation. This is how I outline it. 
Verses 1 through 3, he describes his life as being one that is careless. Not in the sense of we're careless with our words or we're careless with our finances or something along those lines, but the, act, the idea of being free from care. He's careless. He has nothing to worry about. And then he moves in that middle section and basically says that he is fearless. He doesn't worry about things because of who is with him. And then he closes by saying, and you know, this carelessness and fearlessness that characterizes my life will actually be endless. I can live all of my life this way. So let's dive a little bit more deeply into the psalm itself. First of all, under the idea of being careless, the purpose for, then the reason for which he can be careless. He says this, The Lord is my shepherd. Notice he begins with the word thee. In English grammar, there are, we have words that are articles. A, an, and the. A and an are what we call generic articles. Because they could describe anything. If I, said, if I asked someone to bring me a songbook, what would you bring me? You bring me a songbook, but just any one, right? All I'm asking for is a songbook. But if I say to you, bring me the songbook, you might have another question that follows that, which is what? Which one? Why? Because when I say thee, you know I have one thing specifically in mind. Not just any songbook, but a specific songbook. And so when he uses the word thee, and this comes important in Matthew 16, when, when Peter says of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, though, that word thee is not unimportant. And so he says, the Lord... Now you'll notice in your English translation that the word Lord here is in all capital letters. That's because in the Old Testament, Hebrew, there are several different names for God. And they have different... Translators have different ways of communicating to us which divine Hebrew name is being used. Now when the word Lord is in all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, what they're telling us is that this is the divine covenant name for God. It's the four-letter word, as they call it, the tetragrammaton, which is, the, the, is tied directly to, to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14, I am who I am. That's the special name that God shares with His people. It's not a generic game. It's not Elohim that discusses the power of God. It's Yahweh that discusses the special relationship between God and His people because of the covenant they entered into at Sinai. And so when David says, the Lord, he's not being, he's saying, I don't want you to confuse him with anybody else. He's Yahweh. It is the Yahweh, the only one that exists. He is my shepherd. He's my God. And so he wants us to understand that the reason why I'm careless is not because there's something special about me, but because there's something about God that is special. Then he moves and he says, I have a degree of peace. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or literally the Hebrew text says, I lack nothing. Because he has God, he is content. Contentment is um, <clears throat> an issue that sometimes isn't defined very well. And when people talk about finding contentment, they talk about just being happy with your circumstances and, and learning to be happy for other people. But they really don't, they're really not teaching what the Bible says about contentment. Paul said in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, in every circumstance, and he uses a, a number of different metaphors to describe the circumstance, 
from the best of circumstances to the worst of circumstances. He says, I have learned the secret of being content. And here's the most misused verse, perhaps, in all of Scripture. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Listen, with all respect, Jesus doesn't care about your jump shot. That verse does not mean Jesus is going to help you hit a jump shot. That verse means no matter what life throws your way, you are content with it because you have Christ. Christ is the key to contentment. When you realize you have Christ and that He is everything, then you realize that even if I have nothing in the world or I have everything in the world, I already had the most important thing all along. And that was Christ. And so, when He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want that degree of peace. When, you under, when we understand who God is and the fact that we're able to have Him, that He's able to be our God, what else could we want? Now, He's going to go through a number of different pictures and images to describe God's provision for Him. Number one, <clears throat> He says this under this idea, He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Now, this carries with it two ideas. The idea of tranquility and abundance. First, the idea of tranquility. Sheep are very skittish animals. The only time they will ever lie down and go to sleep, other than at night in the sheepfold when the shepherd is standing at the door, is if <clears throat> all the circumstances are right. If they feel secure, if they are full of food, if they are free from nasal flies and other things that would give them problems. And so there is the sense of tranquility. The fact that he's saying he makes me to lie down in green pastures is the idea that he brings me such peace that I can go to sleep at night and realize I don't have anything to worry about. I don't have anything to worry about. And that's such an important lesson because so many of us go to bed at night worrying about things we've got no business worrying about. Those things should have been handed over to God a long time ago. And I can promise you this, as one of my favorite preachers says, God will not play tug of war with you in your struggles. Either you will let Him have them, or He's not going to touch them. It's not, I'm going to let God have part of it, and I'm going to hold on to the other end of it. Either you're going to let Him have them, or He's not going to deal with them. Let Him take them. But there's also the idea of abundance. Notice, he's not laying them down in a barren pasture, but in a green pasture. A place where there's an abundance of food that he doesn't have to worry about a single thing. Then he says, he makes me to lie down, or he leads me beside the still waters. Here's the idea of thirst. <clears throat> the idea of thirst and anxiety. Here's the thing about sheep. Notice, <clears throat> he leads me beside the still waters. You don't drive sheep. You can drive cattle, but you cannot drive sheep. It doesn't work. You have to lead them. It's so interesting. And there are about a zillion different things I'd love to say about every one of these, but we have to stay focused because I don't want to keep you here forever. Um, <clears throat> isn't it interesting the respect that God has for our free will? And He is, one, he is a God that we want to follow. We're willing to follow His lead. 
But he leaves me beside still waters. Why still waters? Why wouldn't he lead it by some waters that can be a little bit tempestuous? Because these still waters, when he's saying still waters, he's saying pretty slow trickle stream. Well, again, because sheep are skittish, but they're really skittish in water for this reason. If they fall over in a stream, they're made, they've got nothing but wool. And when that wool gets wet, it gets what? Heavy. And they can become prey to predators. They can drown. That's why God leads them beside still waters. He's protecting. He knows what we can bear. He knows what we can handle. And He's helping us in that process. Next you get to perhaps my favorite picture, which is the fact that He restores my soul. Trouble and troubles and ailment. What He's talking about here when He says He restores my soul, this has reference to what happens a sheep when a sheep becomes cast. For example, in Psalm 42, three times the psalmist will say, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Casting takes place when a sheep will try, if it's, if it's trying to lie down on a hill, and there, maybe there's this little bitty notch out in the hill it's trying to lie down into, make a pretty good little bed. When it tries to finagle itself into that position, it can sometimes roll over on its back. It loses control. It gets top-heavy. And so it's left on its back, and the sheep begins to panic. Because he knows that he is a prime target for a predator. Also because the gases begin to fill up in its body and will eventually kill it. And so the idea of restoring is the idea of setting the sheep back up right. Now here's the thing. When it comes to restoring a sheep, you don't find a sheep that's been cast, go pick it up and just slam it right back down on its feet. Why? Why? But you don't know how long it's been there. It's completely disoriented. So what do you do? You get down on your hands and knees and you roll the sheep first to its side. Then you begin to rub its legs to get the circulation flowing again. And after a time you roll it over while it's sitting on its legs and you allow it to reorient itself. And then you let it get up and walk and it stays with you the rest of the day and then you let it run the next day. Listen, it's important for us to understand that principle. Sometimes when people are hurt by life, we just want to pick them up. They're on their back. We want to pick them up and slam them on their feet and say, get over it and go on. It's not that simple. And God Himself does not do that to us. There have been times, I'm still very young and I understand that, but there have been times in my 35 years when I didn't know if I was going to walk again. I'm talking spiritually, metaphorically. But God was patient. And God was gracious. And God put people in my life that allowed me to get my legs under me again. That allowed me to run again. That's who God is. That... Here, this is the one comfort that the sheep has while it is cast. It knows its shepherd is coming for it. And tonight, if you are cast, if you are on your back, I want you to know your shepherd is coming for you. He will not leave you in that position. But then he gives this image of teaching and advancing, of 
He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. Sheep are, are, are creatures of habit. They'll walk the same path a million times and that path gets warm and they'll, or gets worn and they'll stick their foot off, <clears throat> that hoof off in a, in a well-worn path and just snap it. So you have to walk them on different paths continually. And that's the image that's used here. God leads us in the paths of righteousness. He shows us the right way. Again, the image of leading, not driving. Now let's move number two because we're changing locations again. It's time to go to the tabletop and eat. Which means you have to leave the comforts of home to get to the top of the mountain. And there is protection that God offers. First, He is protected in this place. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Hebrew text literally reads, even though I walk in the valley of deepest darkness. You see, this text is not... Sometimes it's used to talk about when a person dies. That's the valley of the shadow of death. The, the, the more proper understanding is that the valley of the shadow of death is, is a place of danger where death lingers. Death can happen at any moment. As they're going up to the mountain, they have to traverse the mountain and it's extremely dangerous. That's where robbers would hide out. That's where wild animals would hide out. That's where you could stumble off the path and fall down the mountain. That's the valley of the shadow of death. Death at every turn. Troubles. But he has peace. He says, in that, I will fear no evil. Now listen, the Bible uses evil in two ways. There is evil in the sense of moral evil. When you and I, That's probably the most commonly associated meaning. When we hear the word evil, we think someone who is an evil person. Moral. An immoral person. But the Bible also uses the word evil in the sense of destruction. For an example, when you look at Job, all his friends came to mourn with him for all the evil that had come upon him. All the destruction that had come upon him. Or in Isaiah where God says, I create good and evil. That doesn't mean moral evil. It means He creates peace and calamity. Peace and destruction. Evil is used two different ways. And we have to pay attention to the context. And in this context, the evil is that of destruction. I'm not worried about a robber stealing me away. I'm not worried about an animal stealing me away. I'm not even worried if I get off path because the shepherd will find me. And the reason why is because he says, you are with me. I love this about sheep. I love this statement when studying. Sheep panic when they can't see the shepherd. I love that. Sheep panic when they can't see the shepherd. It says something, I think, about who we are and how we need to follow God. But he says, the rod, which was used for beating off different animals, there are so many different accounts of how they will lift up, a shepherd will lift up a stone and a snake comes out, and before anybody can even know it, the rod is already there and killed the snake. It's, it's a, incredible. The staff is that longer stick that has the hook on it, and that had many purposes. He used it to walk. If a sheep started getting, started to wander off path, he'd take the hook and just wrap it around his neck, not hard, just kind of pull him back in line. Or he drops in a, in a cavern somewhere or something along those lines, he can use that hook to lift the sheep out and draw it back up again. He's saying, I'm not worried because no matter what the situation, he's going to get me out of it. He's going to be with me. He's going to get me out of it. Then he talks about the preparation 
that goes into this. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Before they went all the way to the mountaintop, the shepherd went to the top and got down on his hands and knees and surveyed every square inch of that, of that pasture. He pulled up every poisonous plant. He cleared out every drinking water. And he even put oil on the holes where snakes could not come up or would not come up. He prepared literally a table for them to eat in the presence of things that could harm them. He removed those evils. He also was willing to patch them when things went bad. He said, you anoint my head with oil. You see, sheep, they have a lot of problems with flies, especially nasal flies, but in other things as well. And, you know, I've never really been around sheep all that much, but I, I can tell you I've never really seen a sheep pick its hoof up and just scratch its head. So when a sheep has an itch and it needs to scratch it, it's going to take it and it's going to rub its head up against a tree or a stone. And what's that going to do eventually if you rub it long enough? You're going to rub a sore or something. So at the end of the night, before they went into the sheepfold, there's an inspection of every sheep. Every sheep gets time with the shepherd. And when it sees that, it anoints the head with oil. The medicinal purpose. And then there's this other beautiful image of prosperity. And he says, my cup overflows. Because after the inspection, there would be a giant bucket of water the shepherd would have, filled to the brim, and the shepherd, of course the sheep, tired from all of the heat, would just take its head and just put its head, bury it down in the water. And of course, when you have a bucket full of water and you put something in, what happens? Water just flows. He's using that symbolically to say, that's what my life is. It's like a constant refreshing before God. Now briefly, let's talk about the endless part. They're headed back down to the ranch. And he says that this is prosperity. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Notice, other sheep in other folds had to worry about predators following them and catching them and killing them. The only thing that the people of God have to worry about is His goodness and His mercy overtaking them. That's the only thing that chases them. It's beautiful, isn't it? His goodness and His faithfulness pursues us. It pursues us like a predator. But not to harm us, but to do us good. And he says, you know what? This, this is permanent. This is permanent. Goodness and mercy are going to follow me all the days of my life, that is, during my earthly sojourn, and I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord. For It just keeps getting better. It just keeps amplifying. So God's goodness and mercy follows me. This lifestyle follows me my whole life until I die, and then it only grows. It exponentially grows. As I enter into the presence of God, it's it's even greater, it's even better. Because I'm not living in a fallen world anymore. I'm living in a perfect world. Let's close with, with looking at three practical points from this very quickly. Number one, under the idea of being careless. 
The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 5 and verse 7, casting all your anxieties upon Him because He cares for you. The idea of casting, this word is used of Jesus in the triumphal entry. We remember when they put, they cast a garment or a cloak on the back of the donkey? Same word used here. Take your problems and lay them on the back of God. Casting all your anxieties upon Him. Why? Because He cares for you. Now, here's the problem. When we read a text like that and we see the word you, we want to read it generically. You. Yeah, that means everybody. No. You means you. There's a difference between knowing what 1 Peter 5 and verse 7 says and actually being impacted by the fact that God individually and specifically cares for you at this moment. He individually and specifically cares about you in this very moment. He cares about every one of your problems. But here we go back to this tug of war idea. What I find interesting, and I didn't really notice it until recently in looking at 1 Peter chapter 5, is that when you pay attention to what is said in verse 6, it helps us to better understand verse 7, where it says we are to submit ourselves to God. And one of the ways we submit ourselves to God and we practice humility is by casting our cares on Him. Now how is it? Now what's the implication of that? The implication is that When I try and carry all of my problems on my own, there's a sense of prideful arrogance in that. There's a sense that says, I believe I can handle my problems. I don't need God, or maybe I just need a little help from Him. When I try and carry all of the problems that life throws at me, I'm trying to play God. They're not mine to worry about. They're supposed to be laid on Him. The One who can actually fix it. Think about how foolish it is for us as human beings that are sinful and flawed to think we know better how to solve problems put in front of us than God does. And so we end up many times going through our lives carrying things that we have no business carrying taking responsibility for things we have no business taking responsibility for. Number two, under the idea of fearlessness, we don't have to worry. In Luke chapter 12, there's a pretty peculiar statement Jesus makes when He says, you remember, don't fear those who are able to kill the body, but after that, they have nothing more they can do. Now, listen, if we're just being honest, reading this as human beings, that seems like a lot, Right? I mean, kill the body? Yeah, after that, nothing more you can do. That seems pretty steep to me. But Jesus says, fear the one that can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then he goes on to give this image of, but aren't two sparrows sold for a farthing? And your father knows when one of them falls to the ground. All the very hairs of your head are numbered. But there's something in that statement about not fearing a person who's able to kill your body. Throughout the ages of Christianity, when you study it and you see the people who have persecuted Christianity, 
They have been able to, get, to have a reign of terror over many people in the world because of people's fear of dying. Because they believe that the taking of the life is the greatest act, is the greatest punishment. And that people will do anything if you threaten their life. But with Christianity, they meet their match. It's so interesting to watch the interchanges of early Christians from the reading of the early church fathers and watch their exchanges with the people who were threatening them with death. Polycarp, the elder from Smyrna, was told, they were told him, I'm going, to, I'm going to light you on fire. He said, it's nothing compared to the fire waiting for you. And he died. They burned him alive at 86. They couldn't, and it frustrated them. Or in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. That He says, I am persuaded that neither life nor death, nor things present nor things to come, nor principalities nor powers, nor any other thing created will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, backing up, who's going to lay anything to the charge of God's elect? The one who didn't spare his own son, but freely offered him up for us all, shall he not also with us, with him freely give to us all things? Will persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword separate us from God? Let me ask you something. Has it ever? So if there is nothing external, now notice I'm saying external, if there's nothing external that can separate us from God, you can take my life from me, but here's one thing you can never take from me. You can't ever take God from me. And when that truth grabs a hold of us and we live that way, it changes who we are. It changes how we live. Because what we prize most is God. And we have God and no one can touch that. There is security. And then he says, all of this is endless. I want to close with this text. Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, verse 13. One of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and where have they come? From where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, the persecution. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple, and He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They will hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So He doesn't just shepherd us now. He shepherds us forever. This is why Jesus said in another shepherding text, I have come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. This is how, when everything else is pulling us in different directions, we stay calm. When everything else falls down around us, we have something that does not move. There's a story told, and you know, 
with all these preacher stories that float, who knows if they're real or not. Kind of ironic, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> so there's a story told of an old gathering of uh, people in an old tent of a meeting of some kind. and uh, <clears throat> There was an orator on hand, one skilled in speech and diction and all the different things involved there. And he read Psalm 23 to the crowd in, in his, all of his skill and might. And when he was done, everybody stood and gave him a standing ovation. There was an old preacher that had to be helped to the podium who read the same psalm, Psalm 23. And of course, he was slower, his eyes were failing him. But when he was done, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. And they asked the orator, they interviewed him at the end and said, what was the difference? You moved them to praise you. These people were moved to tears by him. He said, it's quite simple. He said, I know speech. I know how to speak. He knows the shepherd. That's my question for you tonight. Do you know the shepherd? The good shepherd laid down his life for us. And if you're willing with a penitent faith to confess Jesus to be baptized in water for the forgiveness of your sins, you enter into His fold. Or maybe as New Testament Christians, we don't really know the shepherd. We don't really walk with Him. He's waiting for you. He's looking for you. Let Him find you. Confess sins and be welcome back. If we can help you tonight, that's what we want to do as we stand and sing this song.